You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 28th of May 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio 2 here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. This vote is about a rejection of an Ireland that treated women as second-class citizens. After Ireland votes to liberalise its abortion laws, should Northern Ireland be next? My guests Carol Walker and Daniela Pelled will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including today's new Italian Prime Minister and his chances of lasting until tomorrow, the possibility of Israel making its defence forces even less camera-friendly, and the Malian migrant who has become a French national hero. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Carol Walker, political analyst and commentator, and Daniela Pelled, managing editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. Welcome both. Three days on from Friday's astonishing referendum in the Republic of Ireland, in which a liberalisation of abortion laws was endorsed by nearly 65% of voters, attention has inevitably turned to Northern Ireland, where abortion remains illegal, except in limited circumstances, despite the fact that Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom, where abortion is legal. Arlene Foster, leader of the Democratic Unionist Party and the closest thing to a leader of Northern Ireland's currently dormant government, says the Irish vote will have no impact. Some, however, suggest that UK Prime Minister Theresa May should take a lead on the subject. Um, Carol, leaving aside the rights and wrongs uh, of this question um, in terms of abortion in Northern Ireland, wouldn't getting to grips with this be just an act of complete political insanity for Theresa May at this point? Well, I think Theresa May faces yet another huge political and constitutional problem here. Um, She has said so far through her spokesman that she agrees with Arlene Foster that this is an issue that should be decided by the people of Northern Ireland. Constitutionally, it is a devolved matter. Of course, the problem is that we haven't got a Northern Ireland Assembly that has been suspended for um, a year and a half. Add to that this fact that, as you mentioned there, Arlene Foster, who leads the Democratic Unionist Party, is propping up Theresa May's government and is vehemently opposed to any liberalisation of the abortion laws. But what has already happened is that many senior Conservatives, particularly senior Conservative women, are saying, well, look, this shows that the abortion laws in Northern Ireland are an anomaly. It is quite wrong that women don't have the, in, the, in Northern Ireland don't have the same rights as they do in the rest of the UK, and they're going to force it to a vote in the House of Commons. So the danger is that although Theresa May is sticking strictly to perhaps what might be seen as narrowly the correct constitutional position, she will then appear to be completely out of touch with the majority in her party and, it seems pretty likely, a majority in the House of Commons. And if there is that vote to liberalise the laws in Northern Ireland, it's going to pose a further huge problem for her. Uh, Daniela, the DUP have considerable form for this kind of thing, uh, of course. They are a unionist party and they're forever insisting that Northern Ireland is indivisibly part of the United Kingdom and absolutely bound by British laws, except the ones they don't like about abortion and same-sex marriage. Um, 
but is there something to be said for the line Theresa May has taken, which is, I mean, basically she she doesn't want to touch this at all. I suspect mostly for political reasons. Her own convictions on the subject are somewhat opaque. Um, but is there something to be said for the idea that Northern Ireland should be left to sort this out for itself in the way that the Republic of Ireland has? Because polls of the actual people of Northern Ireland uh, are not dissimilar to the results that used to be uh, obtained in the Republic before the referendum. They show about a 65% majority in favour of liberalising the abortion laws. Well, in an ideal world, certainly we could go along with the fact that it is a a devolved matter. But as Carol said, there isn't a government there. The, the, um, The whole atmosphere right now is extremely febrile with Brexit and uh, ongoing discussions about just where Northern Ireland is going to feature and how it's going to fit into into all of this. I mean, in, in Ireland, the referendum served as, quite surprisingly, a really uniting factor. I mean, the the predictions were uh, were positive, but not to the, the extent of a landslide that, that we had. It brought the country together. I'm not sure that having pushing the issue forward right now would do the same in Northern Ireland. Um, No. And on that subject, Carol, is it not weird that religion now seems to be a... Well, uh, when you consider the distance that the Republic Island, Republic rather of Ireland, has travelled in being, to an extent, kind of an adjunct of the Catholic Church um, to where it is now, is, is it strange that religion seems more of a factor in the public life of the North than it still does in the Republic? Well, I think religion is still a huge factor in both parts of the island of Ireland. Um, But I think what appears to have happened in the Republic is that people have managed to separate out their loyalty to the Catholic Church, which many of them still count themselves as members of, and the strict teachings on abortion and have seen this more of a sense of the rights of women, I think fueled in particular by some of those stories about some of the terrible events, the terrible experiences that some women had who uh, had to have abortion, who needed to have abortions, were not able to have it, who travelled, who um, perhaps died because they were unable to uh, have the medical treatment that they needed. Um, But I think that Religion is still a strong factor. And I think what's interesting in Northern Ireland is that although, as you say, the polls suggest that there might well be a similar majority in favour of liberalising the abortion laws amongst the public, there was a vote in the Northern Ireland Assembly when it was up and running only two and a half years ago. And the move to liberalise the laws there was defeated. So I think you have a very complex situation there. The DUP, the Democratic Unionists, are not going to budge on this. And if you haven't got a devolved administration up and running, it's difficult to see how you could even hold a referendum to test the wider public opinion in the North on this issue. I mean, Daniela, even if Theresa May wanted to do anything about this, specifically liberalising the abortion laws in Northern Ireland, is she realistically in a situation where she could? Or is this going to be one of those things where anything, even if it is, even if you're arguing with a nominally unionist party, there is always that dynamic in British politics that the the more the British try to alter anything on the island of Ireland, uh, the worse they make things. Well, I don't know if there's a constitutional case to to be made for it maybe there is uh maybe there isn't but 
I can't imagine that she's going to even try and enter into it. This has been the whole issue is going to be used as a very convenient stick to to beat her with, with from within her party and the opposition uh, as well. So the only thing she can do right now, I think, is to fudge it as much as possible. It certainly wouldn't have the same um, effect. I mean, I think partly the, the votes uh, in Ireland came after the referendum on gay marriage and really reflected how they as a nation see themselves and this kind of uh, knock-on effect. Uh, I agree that their religion is still very important, but I think it was a move away from perhaps a feeling that the Catholic Church was dominating and, and bullying them. So it's completely different kettle of fish. Uh, but I think Theresa May would have to allow a free vote on it if it came to it in the House of Commons. You couldn't possibly whip on an issue that has always traditionally been something which is seen as a, a moral question and something on which MPs should be allowed to express their personal views. If that happened, if there was, as seems very likely, an overwhelming vote in the House of Commons uh, to change the laws in Northern Ireland, uh, it would be a huge challenge to the Prime Minister. She could simply say, well, look, it's only advisory because this is a devolved matter. But if she was then seen to be somehow blocking a move that many people in the Commons and many people across Northern Ireland would see as a sensible and a progressive move, then I think that puts her in a very difficult place indeed. But I think it would be a suicidal move for uh, from her party's part to to push for that. It's one thing showing up the cracks in her in her government and the cracks in her well and her very cracked uh, um, term in office, but to to bring it to a vote to push for that, I just think. But but Labour have already said they're going to put down an amendment to a domestic violence bill that's going through the Commons. They're going to try and push it to a vote. And we've already had indications, not least from some Conservative ministers, that if it came to a vote on this issue in the Commons, they would be minded to vote for it. Well, let's look now at Italy, uh, where, to the surprise of almost nobody, the Yahoo coalition attempted by left-leaning populist Five Star and right-tilting populist Lega appears on the verge of implosion. Giuseppe Conte, put forward as Prime Minister despite few Italians having heard of him, has returned to obscurity after failing to assemble a government, the sticking point being President Sergio Mattarella's vetoing of his choice of finance minister. Earlier today, President Mattarella asked former IMF economist Carlo Cottarelli to form a government, although if he does, it is unlikely to be for long. Um, Daniela, first of all, uh, Paolo Savona was the the man that uh, Giuseppe Conte wanted as finance minister and who President Mattarella clearly didn't. Uh, did he do the right thing, well, blackballing him? I don't, this, is, this is a tricky one. Uh, he has the power to. Indeed. He has the power to. Um, and in some ways it made sense because... Uh, his nomination just seemed like an attempt at trolling, really, by the by the the other two parties. However, it's really not a good thing to be seen to be doing, especially when well, Europe at wide and Italy are feeling pretty antsy about the control of of Europe and what happens to people who oppose Europe. It just fuels all the conspiracy theories and fuels all the populist uh, arguments and makes the char- likelihood of a, an elections in a few months' time even more likely. Um, on the subject of trolling, Carol, is it, is it arguable that the president is doing a certain amount of that himself in his choice of prime minister? He is a, a former IMF economist and noted austerity enthusiast who had previously acquired the nickname Mr. Scissors. Yeah, I think this is a very dangerous move indeed. Um, you're right that technically the president does have the power to veto appointments like this and there are precedents. But you have 
got you've had an election which has brought to power two populist parties that had put together a program that would have splurged huge amounts of money, uh, set a flat rate of tax, had a guaranteed minimum uh, income for families. And not only has the president rejected their uh, nomination for finance minister, they put in place as the interim prime minister, as you say, Mr. Scissors, who's got a record for massive cutbacks. He's going to be putting forward a programme that would appear to be diametrically opposite to that of the elected parties. Um, His chances of getting that through have got to be pretty low. Um, Yes, we're heading for another general election in Italy. But I think worse still, I think this move by the president, particularly when all those other senior European leaders are saying, oh, we can't have this populist government. If you've got people appearing to club together to thwart the will of the voters, that is absolutely going to play into the hands of these populists who will go back to the country and say, listen, look what happened last time and we'll hopefully seek an even bigger mandate. But, Daniela, this this actually does kind of work for the populists, doesn't it? Because Five Star and Lager, like most populists, like most revolutionaries, I mean, if they're honest with themselves and each other, they're much happier, like, whining about some sort of sinister coup to thwart the will of the people than they are about actually having to govern and make sure water comes out of the taps and the rubbish gets collected. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if they had had their, their choice and I had actually moved forward into implementing their kind of dramatic programme, things might have not gone so well for them but everything everyone around europe uh is going to be watching what happens in italy i find it puzzling because as far as i understood it maybe carol knows more about this uh i thought the italians were not so that the idea of the euro was not so unpopular i think it, it i think it had uh it was originally popular and even a few years ago the euro was still very popular but I think that uh, a lot of Italians felt that the country was not doing particularly well out of their membership of the Eurozone. And then there was this uh, sense of resentment at the vast numbers of migrants uh, that were coming into the country. Uh, and they felt that they simply weren't getting the help that they needed from the rest of Europe. I think that fueled that anti-European sentiment. They then have these populist leaders coming along and saying, listen, we're going to cut your taxes. We're going to guarantee loads of money. They they had actually taken off the table their original idea of having a referendum on membership of the Eurozone. But their economic plans would have been a huge breach of all the Eurozone rules. So I think that that is what has has come together in fueling this sort of resentment at Brussels. And I fear that the latest events are simply going to fuel that further. Um, Daniela, is there... um I mean, there's, there's a truism that gets recited about Italian politics a lot at moments like this, which is that the situation is always grave but never serious. Uh, is there something of a return to uh, Italy as, as we once knew and loved its politics, where the prime minister sort of more or less changed every other week? No one really knew who it was from one day to the next, but the country actually seemed to function quite well. Well, it seems that way, doesn't it? But when you think that its neighbours are Switzerland and so on, it's not so much as at stake. Uh, the problem is now we find ourselves in this morass of of Brexit here and populism across Europe. What astonishes me is that Europeans are not looking at the enormous tangle we've got ourselves into here uh, with Brexit and thought, well, hold on a sec, 
it's going really wrong for them. It's sucking all the energy out of their entire national existence. Perhaps there's a different way. And what we've seen as well is that these events have really spooked the markets because what ultimately many uh, other European leaders are concerned about is that if these populists were in power, if they did try and put forward, their, if they do try and see through the platform that they have proposed, that that could land the Eurozone in huge problems. It could land Italy itself in, in huge problems and the rest of the Eurozone might then have to bail it out. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Daniela Pellet and Carol Walker. More after the break. Climb aboard Monocle's June issue, where we take a ride through the latest in planes, trains and automobiles, drivers included, in our annual transport survey. But first we set sail in Spain's medical ship, with its crew of doctors and nurses looking to help anyone waylaid by choppy seas. From there, we hit a cruising altitude of 30,000 feet until we touch down in Toowoomba, where one Aussie family is transforming the town with an international airport. Then it's on to the tour bus to see what life is like on the road with the band. Surprisingly homely if you're on a night train coach, followed by a quick stop to meet the journos on the front line of Brexit. Now it's time to get high with a whistle-stop tour of the new elevated parks, popping up in London, Copenhagen and São Paulo, inspired, of course, by New York's High Line. Then we pop corks at Verona's Vinitaly, head to the hills for a spot of camping with mountain wear brand Amundsen Sports and its handsome team, and drop in at Marseille's oldest hardware shop, Maison Empereur, to stock up on, well, pretty much anything and everything we need. Monocle's June issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Mullister. With me are Carol Walker and Daniela Pellet. Now, few militaries are fond of being photographed while doing their job, especially that part of a military's work likeliest to result in unflattering or unappetising images. Israel's parliament is to consider legislation which would make the Israel Defence Forces among the world's least camera-friendly. Under the proposed bill, those who photograph IDF troops with, quote, the intention of undermining the spirit, quote, whatever that means, uh, of the army or residents of Israel could face jail terms of up to five years, while anyone intending to harm state security, again, whatever that means, uh, could be looking at 10. Um, Daniela, first, on the subject of whatever that means, when they talk about undermining the spirit of the IDF or the residents of Israel, do we know exactly what is being got at here? Well, no, and that's the whole, <laughs> that's the whole point of it. Uh, should start off by saying it's highly unlikely that this law would be passed. I mean, it is being mooted by a very small party, but it is it is the party of Avigdor Lieberman, the defence minister, who's not without influence, presumably. Look, there's there's a certain amount of public sympathy as well for this. The thing, the the role that the IDF plays in Israel is really central to the country's identity. All Jewish uh, men over the age of eighteen are expected to serve, although there are mass exemptions for the ultra orthodox. It's very much a people's army, and they're very much our boys and girls. That's how they're viewed. Um, in the country, but also it stands for a symbol of Zionism and what the country means. They, they even call the Israel Defence Force. It's very much uh, completely wrapped up in how the country sees itself. So it would be very impractical to put such a, a law in, into place, not least because anyone with a camera phone, uh, with, with anyone with a camera or a phone, couldn't document this. But also the wording is very diffuse. What it's intended to do is to send a message, uh, like huge amounts of other very anti-democratic legislation that criticism of 
the Zionist project and the state of Israel, the national symbols, is dangerous and can lead to all kinds of scary places. A few years ago, there was uh, the so-called boycott law, which means that anyone, uh, any Israeli citizen calling for a boycott of any territories under Israeli control, that's the West Bank too, is li- who calls for a boycott is liable to be sued in a civil court. Now, this hasn't happened yet. But the theory, theoretically, it could be done. It sends a chilling message to people who are campaigning for freedom of speech and human rights or against the occupation. I mean, Carol, as Daniela correctly points out, this is sending a message, or that's the intention of it. But in terms of just practicality, does a law like this actually mean anything in an age in which almost everybody has a camera? Well, I think it is very, very difficult indeed to see how it could be enforced. But I think that it is also a pretty risky move for the government to take were it to go down this route. I accept that it's unlikely to go through, but it it smacks of a pretty repressive and authoritarian regime. I was interested to see that an editorial even in Haaretz described it as dangerous attempt to silence criticism of the army uh, and in particular um, prevent human rights organisations from documenting what it was up to. And given the fact that it comes just a few weeks after we saw those demonstrations brutally suppress some 60 demonstrators killed, uh, it does seem as though this is an attempt at a pretty uh, repressive uh, move to try to prevent human rights activists from documenting what's going on. I mean, it's interesting if you contrast it within the UK, where the police, obviously, slightly different force and a very different security uh, situation, but are increasingly wearing cameras. Clearly, they're facing outwards rather than at the officers themselves, but they are nonetheless documenting what goes on when those police officers try to arrest someone, uh, try to police a demonstration and so on. So I think that this runs pretty much counter to the sort of openness that we have seen in security forces across most of certainly the the Western world. Um, And I would have thought that many other um, Western countries would be concerned that if Israel were to go down this this path. Um, Daniela, the IDF does operate under unusual scrutiny uh, among the world's militaries, partly because of its geographical situation, partly because it operates very close to the the borders of an extremely technologically advanced country and, and partly because lots of people around the world have a grudge against Israel and want uh, footage of it doing bad or unflattering things. Um, Is there any indication, as you see it, that that scrutiny has altered the behaviour of the IDF? Well, I I think so, yes. I mean, the the army films its operations as well, almost uh, a standard, partly to improve operational performance, but also to collect evidence and uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, there is an awareness, however unlikely, of prosecution or investigations at the uh, at the uh, uh, ICC. And one of the one of the prerequisites for being referred there, amongst very complex legal issues, is that the country is not able to prosecute its own crimes. So there were some cases opened into army behaviour after the 2014 war in Gaza. But this isn't really about the outside world scrutiny. I mean, I think this is criticism from within. In the actual text of the proposed legislation, it name checks Israeli organisations such as B'Tselem and Breaking the Silence. It says these are funded by foreign governments. It's the same sort of suspicious, suspicious, uh, suspicious, suspicions of foreign funded NGOs you have in Russia and 
uh, and other places not known for their democratic uh, vitality. But this is very much about the enemy within uh, and sending a warning a warning sign. I, the biggest danger, not that this will pass in any way, but it will be replaced with much uh, weaker legislation, which still will increase this anti-democratic sentiment, uh, which is definitely on the rise in Israel. Just as a final quick thought on this one, Carol, have, have we yet understood in the sort of everybody equipped with a camera social media age how much uh, protection militaries are entitled to request from scrutiny? I think it, like so many things, what has happened here is that the laws have not kept pace with the technology um, and that we do now live in a society where, as we've mentioned, everyone has a phone, uh, they can film things. We have uh, citizen journalists uh, all around us. That is happening in Israel as well as everywhere else. I I worked in Israel back in the first Gulf War and was fascinated as to how open they were to the media. Sophisticated, yes, uh, in terms of the access that they allowed you, but 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 a much more similar to the American approach to the media than we have here in the UK. And I think it is quite surprising now that in this day and age, Israel is trying to swim against the tide with this sort of measure. Okay. Well, finally tonight to Paris, where a Malian migrant called Mamadou Gassama has not had the Monday morning he might have had planned this time last week. He has spent the day being fated at the LSE Palace by President Emmanuel Macron. Macron presented with a medal and being told that both his French citizenship and a volunteer role in the fire service would be sorted out in due course. The accolades follow the 22-year-old's astonishing rescue on Saturday evening of a child dangling from the fourth floor balcony. Mr Gassama scaled the front of the building and hauled the infant to safety. Um, first and foremost, it is, it's an, it is an extraordinary thing that he did, both, in, both as a, a, an act of, of quick thinking and bravery and and basic physical prowess when you sort of measure against my own chances of doing 10 uninterrupted pull-ups climbing four stories of a building in 30 seconds flat is is quite some going Uh, but Daniela what what do you make of President Macron's response? Well um, Adam makes me rather think about our ideas of citizenship and whether you can somehow win residency or citizenship of a country by this incredible feat of bravery and surely people are entitled to human rights or residency or through a normal process and they don't have to uh, prove themselves in this way i mean what next do we have a hunger games to to win citizenship of, of european countries it's, it's all makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable well carol obviously because everything is now terrible this 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 act of extraordinary bravery has become a lightning rod for a massive row about immigration and and the argument has been made well the same a- argument daniela is making but i guess from a less generous perspective which is that uh, mr gassama was in france illegally and he should not be entitled to any special consideration just because he did this one marvellous thing. I think what's extraordinary is that what you're seeing here is a single case, and yes, that video is extraordinary when you see him shinning up four floors, rapidly hauling himself over the balconies, um, that what it does is it humanises 
these people who, this was a, a, a Malian who had fled on a perilous journey across Burkina Faso and Nigeria and Libya and paid smugglers to get him across the Mediterranean and he had no papers and he had no rights to be in the country. Um, but, but what it's done is it's showed that this was a man whose instincts were to help others, who had a human face. Fascinating to see President Macron immediately, within hours, um, seize upon this as an opportunity to summon him into the Elysee Palace, grant him citizenship and so on. Um, but of course, it comes against this backdrop when there is a great deal of uh, resentment and tension between different communities where we've seen uh, the right wing, extreme right wing parties gaining ground on the back of concerns about the scale of immigration. Um, and I think what will be interesting to see whether President Macron actually uses this to try to turn the tide of public opinion about this or whether it's just really a fairly cheap publicity stunt to try to uh, get a little bit of shine on his presidency from the remarkable bravery of one young man. And isn't Daniela just another example of how people will just see what they wish to? Because already inevitably on social media there are um, there are Mamadou Gassama truthers at last. insisting that the whole thing was a stunt, that it didn't really happen, um, and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's uh, what what, what France, I mean, I'm not sentimental enough maybe, but what France needs to do is, like other countries in Europe, but particularly France, has to have a a concrete and sensible uh, policy and treat people fairly. And the idea that you have one... This is the, the classic, the good immigrant, the one good guy who by this amazing feat has uh, redeemed himself when well, it shouldn't really be a matter of redemption in the first place. Uh, I can't see that Macron had any other choice, though. Can you imagine the outcry, probably from some of the same people who are really outraged about illegal immigration, had he not given him some sort of massive pardon? Concrete and sensible policies, it'll never catch on. That brings us to the end of today's show. Daniela Pellet and Carol Walker, thank you both for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Amber Roberts. The studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's the Monocle Culture Show with Robert Bound. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.